This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. The population on our planet has been growing steadily and quickly. What role might that growing number have on conflict in the world? Seems like overpopulation was a big concern 40 or 50 years ago. Is it still? Do prospective parents think about the impact that bringing children into the world might have on the planet's population-related problems? Our series co-founder, Suzanne Kreider, wanted to look into it. She's here in the studio with me. Hi, Suzanne. Hey, Paul. So people have been listening to Peace Talks Radio for some time. They probably know that you and I were a couple. We were together for 20 years and married for 13 years. And we had some personal history with this conversation about population because we had a very conscious conversation about whether or not to have children. We did, and we talked to some of our friends who had children and did not have children. The ones with children said, oh, yeah, it was great. You should have children. The ones without children said, eh, don't have kids. Mm -hmm. So it was a little confusing. And uh, we also noticed that our siblings had done quite a bit to populate the planet. And what else was coming up? Oh, gosh, my age. I was turning 40, and I figured I needed to make a decision. And I think we were also thinking, or I can speak for myself, about where we were in our lives and whether we had the capacity to put the energy into raising kids. I can remember there were times when we said, we can barely take care of ourselves. (laughs) Something like that. Do you remember that? Yes. (laughs) So some of that thinking, obviously, I guess, has led to, as we think about topics for Peace Talks Radio, that you wanted to explore uh, the conversation about population numbers and its relation to conflict on the planet and peacemaking. So tell me more about where you wanted to take this show. Yes, there is controversy on how many people the planet can hold. Some people say 4 billion, some people say 16 billion, and I was curious about the individual versus the social issue of this. There are two conflicts, so people have to decide if they want a baby and what will the impact be on society. And so I was guessing, I guess I was looking for confirmation of our decision <laughs> in a way, but I'm also seeing lots of other things happening to the planet, like um, species extinction, um, climate change. And I'm wondering, should the U.S. population be concerned about the population elsewhere? And there was this very famous book written by Paul Ehrlich in 1968 called The Population Bomb that... Uh, predicted a lot of calamity if people weren't paying more attention to our procreation rate. Uh, And as we started to explore this uh, topic, I I guess we both found that much of what was predicted in that landmark book didn't come to pass, which kind of undercut the conversation a bit about concern over population. Is that fair to say? Yes. And he, in his book, predicts mass extinction due to starvation. Well, that didn't happen, but it's happening in some places. But that's why I wonder, well, should we care about some places? And should we stop having so many babies? And do babies just consume more? Should we keep having babies without thinking about it? 
So as we've tried to line up guests, is it also fair to say that it was hard to find people who really wanted to talk about this issue? I spent lots of time researching and looking on the internet for people who had written about population peace. The closest I found was a report in 1984. And so that concerned me that no one currently is writing about it. So we're going to talk later about the woman who helped write that 1984 report, right? That's Nasli Chukri? Yes. And who's our first guest? Our first guest is John Seeger. He's the president and CEO of Population Connection, which used to be Zero Population Growth, ZPG. Well, one has to go back a bit. Uh, let's say 160,000 years, but not for long. It, it took about 160,000 years for our species to get up to 1 billion people on this planet. Today, we add another billion every dozen years or so. Uh, so our population, human population, is growing rapidly, and we're having a real impact on this crowded planet that we share with so many other critters and, of course, the rest of the members of our species. Uh, we think it's a big challenge, and we think there's some very humane and sensible and common-sense ways of addressing it. When you see impact, give me a short list. What are a few impacts? We are undergoing a vast species extinction, the likes of which has never been seen during our time on this planet. It's happened before, but that was before we, we showed up, if you will, evolved into Homo sapiens. So that's one major impact that we're having on all of the other species on this planet. We're having a great impact on the lives of uh, the humans here. Some of us are doing quite well, but for billions of us, every day is a struggle, a struggle to get enough food to eat, a struggle to find clean water, a struggle simply to survive. And those challenges become worse as we become more crowded. John, Paul Ehrlich wrote a book in 1968, The Population Bomb, and he predicted things like mass starvation. He wasn't exactly right about that, but he didn't get all his projections exactly right. But I'm curious, what's your opinion of his original book? Well, Dr. Ehrlich, who then and now was a professor and is a professor at Stanford, is a scientist, not a soothsayer. Scientists work with the data they have. Uh, that's all they can do. And the data that he had available suggested that things were going to happen at a time and a pace uh, that uh, seemed coherent. One of the things that occurred almost simultaneously with the publication of the population bomb was something called the Green Revolution, uh, which uh, was spearheaded by, not alone, but spearheaded by a man named Norman Borlaug, who deserves credit for saving the lives, he and his team, for saving the lives of about one billion people through enhanced agricultural practices. So just at the moment when that famine was unfolding, there was this dramatic development, uh, which certainly reduced uh, the number of people who were impacted by those challenges, but in turn, that green revolution has created a whole series of problems and challenges for us today in the form of climate change. And that's something that Dr. Ehrlich will tell you he didn't see coming back then. And how does the number of people, let's say in a given geographical area in the U.S., how does that impact the peace for the person individually and also for society in general? It is a numbers issue, but it also has to do with how we live. 
You can make a pretty good case that the most sustainable lifestyle in America today are the people who live on that island called Manhattan. They tend to live in small units. Uh, they share in common their open space. Uh, most of them sensibly don't own cars. Why would you want to own a car in Manhattan? And so in many ways, you can have a very sustainable lifestyle in a particular place uh, with a pretty dense population. The challenge is that all of those people uh, need to have enough food to eat, water to drink. We have to deal with issues like waste disposal. And it's, it's these challenges when they come together, particularly in places that tend to be conflict-ridden. And when you look at those conflicts, they almost always occur in places where there's intense life and death competition for scarce resources. So it's the combination of those things that creates the conflict, not just the density in a given place. Why is there an absence of current writing on this issue of population peace? I saw one writer refer to it as the real inconvenient truth. When Dr. Ehrlich wrote The Population Bomb uh, back in 1968, the United States was undergoing a dramatic fertility transition. Back in the 1950s, the average American family was about 3.7, 3.8 children. It dropped by nearly 50% in just 20 years. So we were undergoing this enormous change to smaller families ourselves, and that helped people connect the personal with the global. Now that Americans have smaller families, by and large, I think it's more difficult for people because they look around their own communities, they look at their own lives, and they say, well, we're already having smaller families. It seems like the problem's been fully addressed. And yet, if you look at it globally, it hasn't. So I think when you can't connect what you see out your own window on a given day with a global challenge, it can be difficult to put it all together. There's a website called Small Families, and they have this list of good reasons to have a child and bad reasons to have a child. And one good reason is, well, you know, I was an only child. I didn't have any siblings. I want a lot of children. A bad reason was pressure to have kids. So society says, oh, that's normal. We shall have children. What are some other good reasons to have a child or bad reasons to have a child, John? If you and whoever else uh, is, is your significant other, if, if you're fortunate enough to have one, uh, have room in your heart, have room in your wallet, have room in your home, and, and want to have a child or more than one child, uh, that's wonderful. That's great. I mean, we wouldn't be talking today if somebody somewhere hadn't had the children decision to have children. Uh, so uh, I, I'm not going to come down hard on that. The real issue, though, isn't that. It's the fact that there are so many children born here in the United States and around the world who are unplanned and even more tragically unwanted. Dr. King wrote eloquently about this some 50 years ago when he talked about the fact that there are 400,000 back then, 400,000 unwanted, unwanted children born in the United States every year. That's still true today. That's the real tragedy. I don't see it as tragic if, if people uh, want to make whatever choices they want to make as long as they have the capacity to do so. I'm not a professional busybody, and I try not to be one in my personal life either. It's really a question of removing the barriers that enable people to fulfill their destinies, not trying to tell people what to do. 
Okay, so you're saying that if people have the money and the heart, they can have like 20 kids. I think that when you look at the facts and you look at what we've learned, particularly over the last 50 years since, say, the publication of the population bomb, what we have learned in every society, in every culture, when women and couples have the information, have the access to services, have the education, by and large, they choose smaller families. Uh, so there's, there's nothing really to debate here. Uh, it's just a question of removing the barriers that prevent people from doing that. And if someone wants to exercise their right uh, to have a larger family, then that's fine. One, one can't very well be supportive of human rights and reproductive rights and then get irked when people don't do what you think they should. I want your opinion, though, because I'm really asking for that. And I, we're a program about peace. So I'm curious, if I choose to have 20 kids, is that going to impact the peace of my neighbors or the people in the city I live in or maybe the country I live in? I don't know. I, I guess it depends on your neighbors. You probably could ask them, see what they think about it. Uh, what we have discovered, though, I'll give you a, a kind of a, a way of looking at this. Back when that book was published in 1968, there were four countries, about four countries on Earth, that were at or below what's called replacement rate fertility. That is to say, a couple has two kids, essentially, replace themselves. Today, there are nearly 100. We've made incredible progress. The key to that progress is, is to always, always refrain from... Uh, telling other people what to do. And so I don't really have an opinion on that because I can't imagine anybody who would care what my opinion is. I don't even care what my opinion is. I don't know why anybody else would. <laughs> John Sigur, tell us more about what Population Connection is doing to address the population issue. What we do at Population Connection are two things. One, we engage in population education. We train about 12,000 kindergarten through 12th grade teachers a year, and we produce a full array of curriculum materials that's used in about 50,000 schools all over the United States, most of them public schools, I might note. We have a network of 600 professional educators around the country who are volunteer teacher trainers. Many, but not all of them, but many of them are professors of education at, often at state universities, who integrate our materials into their program for teachers in training. We also offer in-service programs within school districts. And the first step in that process is to get approval from the state. So, for example, we have the approval in, to use the example of one state, Texas. So we meet the state standards for in-service teacher education, and we're able to go to a school district and say, here, we have some materials that fit state standards. We're approved by the state of Texas to do this, and we're able to provide this to you. We reach about 3 million school children a year. Our goal with that population education program is not to tell students what to think, but rather to get them to think about these things. The other half of our work, equally important but quite different, is grassroots advocacy on behalf of international family planning, uh, because we see that as one of the best ways to meet the challenges that we face on this planet. John, I'm curious if you get any pushback like from school boards saying, no, you can't bring a curriculum because it's social engineering. The key with our materials is that they are issue neutral. 
we stick to the facts. We're not trying to sell a program in schools. We're trying to get students to think about the implications that are involved with population growth. We don't want to tell them what to think. If we can just succeed in getting students to think, we, we will have accomplished our education mission. But don't some people say facts are kind of squirrely, like you can't really say what a fact is? There does seem to be a trend out there. Uh, I can think of one man in particular who seems to like to talk a lot about fake news. I just assume not use his name on the air. He seems to get a lot of airtime these days without my help. Facts do matter. And I am just naive enough, I suppose, and I hope I don't stop being this naive, to believe that when you sit down with people and you try to have a measured, thoughtful conversation with them, facts can still make a difference. I know there's some evidence to suggest I'm wrong, but that's the one point on which I'm not going to relent in my work. We're going to stick to the facts. We're going to try to make our arguments in a calm, reasoned way, and I hope we prevail. John, should people in the U.S. really care if the population in developing countries is increasing? There's a saying in recycling, there's no a way to throw anything. We know that events that occur in the farthest parts of this globe can have direct and immediate effects on people right here. We have brave young men and women who are serving in harm's way all over the globe. One can argue about the merits and demerits of any of those forms of engagement. But the fact is, there are people here at home who worry about them, who love them. When there's a challenge somewhere, uh, it can have an impact everywhere and anywhere. After all, there's no such thing as Santa Fe warming or Detroit warming. It's global warming. And we have to look at the interconnectedness between these issues and see that population growth is one of those key factors that's driving these challenges. If we should care in the U.S., what can we do? The most important thing people can do is to be good citizens. I know it's trite. I know it's shopworn, But people need to, to vote. They need to pay attention. They need to let the people whom they elect, or at least who are elected, whether they voted for them or not, know by showing up day after day, trying to communicate as best they can that they expect our elected officials to do the right thing. Uh, to paraphrase Churchill, uh, sometimes elected officials do that after they've tried everything else. Well, maybe it's time to try that. You're saying we should care more about who we elect than what we personally do. In terms of personal behavior, again, most Americans have shifted to small families. I speak on college and university campuses all over the country, and for me to go and tell college students today to have small families would be like telling people to wear shoes when they go to Manhattan. They've already got that figured out. They've already got that figured out. The real challenge now is how do we become good citizens? How do we fulfill our responsibilities in that regard? Again, on the personal side, people are generally having small families these days. And when they're not, it's often because there are barriers placed in the way of them being able to fulfill their own goals. It seems like the population conflict issue refers to an internal conflict, like, you know, this, should I have a baby or not? 
plus an external conflict, like the one we're talking about, like between groups and countries. So I'm curious in the U.S., who are some types of people who are experiencing the greatest internal conflict? Are there certain groups of people who are saying, I don't know if I should have another baby or not? The Centers for Disease Control uh, does some really good research on these issues around family size and the decision to have children. And one of the things they found, which I think is fascinating, when they asked women who have had an unplanned birth, who weren't using contraception, why they didn't use it. Overwhelmingly, they say one of two things. They, either, they say either, I didn't think I was going to have sex, or I didn't think I could get pregnant. That suggests that this is far less a deliberative process than it is a process of trying to fill the gaps of knowledge and the gaps of access and if you do that, you can dramatically reduce the number of unplanned births. And it's unplanned births that are the real challenge here at home and around the world. Say more about the gap of knowledge, because what does that have to do with, I don't know if I'm going to have sex or not? Well, if you aren't sure if, uh, if you're going to get, if you don't think you're going to get pregnant, uh, you might uh, be more likely to engage in certain kinds of activity. I'll, I'll give you a, a, a statistic. If you have 10,000 women who are in their childbearing years, heterosexual, sexually active, if they use birth control pills, about 800 of them will get pregnant in a year. If they use implants, these new implants that are available, Five, not 500, five will get pregnant. That's a big difference. New contraceptive technologies are quite literally 200 times or nearly so more effective than birth control pills. And yet a lot of women don't know about them yet or find difficulty accessing them. That's an example of where the information can be transformative. And I want to further note that it's shameful how little research has been done on male contraception. Say a little bit more about male contraception. Well, as a young woman at a program I attended a while back said, if men could get pregnant, birth control pills would be free and bacon-flavored. <laughs> uh, I think there's more than a little truth to what she has said. Contraceptive research is not a big moneymaker for pharmaceutical companies. That's just a fact. Uh, it's noteworthy that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is investing significantly in some groundbreaking research around male contraception by covering a lot of the research costs for which they should be congratulated. Uh, the old joke is that male contraception is 10 years away from availability and always will be. But it does seem as if we are getting closer to more effective alternatives in that regard. I suspect, though, and, and I, uh, as a male, I perhaps will never really understand this, but I suspect that even if we had a perfect form of male contraception, many women would still like to be able to be sure that they have control over the whole process, as they should. It sounds sort of like the electric car. It's always 10 years away. Well, I suspect both of those things are, are coming our way one way or another. Uh, we are making some progress with that. 
But a lot of it is just basic information. When you, when you go around the world, one of the things you discover in developing countries is the number one reason why women don't use contraception is fear of side effects, either because there's only one method available in that particular place, and it was a problem for that particular woman, or because she's been fed misinformation by people, either deliberately or otherwise. There are so many of these hard-to-see barriers that once you see them, you can overcome them with a relatively modest investment of time and money, and yet we're not doing it. And when you say access, do you mean access to, like, free birth control implants or access even if you have to pay? Access challenges come in different forms. Sometimes it's a question of affordability. Sometimes it's a question of misinformation. Sometimes it's a question of physical proximity uh, in terms of where one is located. It varies from place to place and person to person. But all of these challenges are relatively easy to overcome. And there's great evidence to show that when you do overcome them, uh, family size plummets. You can hear more from Suzanne's conversation with John Seeger, president and CEO of Population Connection. Her complete interview with him, in fact, at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Look for the October 2017 episode page and click on uh, Mr. Seeger's picture. We'll take a short break now and come back with our next guest, Dr. Natsli Chukri, professor of political science at MIT. Population growth and peace. Today's topic on Peace Talks Radio. More in a moment. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We're online with all the programs in our series at peacetalksradio.com. Also, you can look for updates from us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Paul Ingalls. Suzanne Kreider now continues her exploration of population growth's impact on conflict rates and the hope for peace on the planet by talking with Natsli Chukri, a professor of political science at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, of course. Her work is in the area of international relations, most notably on sources and consequences of international conflict and violence. She's written about population's impact on them. Dr. Chikri, I read your report online. It was uh, published in 1984 about population conflict. It was so hard for me to find other resources that are even more current on population conflict. No one's talking about are writing about the impact of population size on peace. What's going on? I, I think it's uncomfortable, but it's not just size. 
it's uh, when people cross borders to areas where they meet communities or cultures that's not their own, you know. And the reason I, I keep saying it's not just size is because if you look at Europe, they really are having trouble reproducing themselves, so to speak. Hmm. So it's uncomfortable to talk about population peace, but it sounds like size is not the only issue. You're not as concerned about size. No, you're I'm not. not. I'm not. And about, particularly in the U.S., you're not really concerned. Like, people can just keep having babies and you don't care about the size. Well, they're not really not keeping having I mean, I mean, um, I haven't looked at the, uh, at the U.S. statistics recently, but they're not out of line. I mean, we wouldn't target the U.S. as a major problem uh, size-wise. We may target it as a major problem in terms of what people are doing with their consumption patterns. Um, still, too many, too, too many bottles are being thrown away, etc. But size per se, um, at least that, that's my, my, my take on it. Because in the back of my mind, I multiply size by level of economic development or level of the type of behavior that the society has, etc. But let me push you on this because consumption relates to size. Absolutely, absolutely. Consumption relates to size. So, uh, in the United States, that consumption is is still, although given the changes we've seen. Uh, and we're trying to be cleaner and uh, uh, smarter and leaner. It's, it's still a lot of, of uh, guck comes with the consumption. But wouldn't it be, be terrific if uh, industry responded a little bit faster? Now, let me give you a plug for the U.S. system. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Not that you need one, but it's really... As I look around, I'm thinking... Um, the backlash in, that we've seen in Europe, in many of the European countries, you know, against reacting um, against the the, the um, refugees, etc., even reacting against the, the, their long-term migrants that have been there for decades, to me has been really quite shocking. In the United States, diversity is not something we dislike. At least in principle, honor diversity. We accept. I mean. The, the statue of the old, the statue of liberty view um, is is not is far from dead it may be sometimes a little bit subdued at times but it it's still the dominant dominant ethos not so in europe not so so what this means for the europeans if if they don't want to uh, have to throw all those migrants and refugees out they're going to have to go through some some cultural adjustments both the refugees themselves and, and the mainline Europeans, to accept diversity as normal and not as a pathology. That sounds like as if I'm preaching. I really am not. I'm thinking pragmatically from their point of view. Dr. Nasli Chukri, I've seen in several reports this quote, population size and growth, crowding and density alone do not lead to violence. Do you agree? I agree, but actually, once there is crowding and once there is density, then uh, conditions lead to uh, tempers, and uh, regardless of what the situation is on the ground, and that leads to social conflict, social violence. But density per se, not necessarily. Huh. So how dense can it be? Well, it's in relation to... 
uh, how many uh, people in relation to the food available to them, in relation to uh, the quality of the air, in relation to a, a, whole, a whole set of living conditions. So it's very hard to come up with a number, but it becomes much easier to understand you know, the, the tensions that arise when you put the people in the, in the particular context that, that they have. Many people feel that population problems are only about births and deaths, but there's also demographic changes. How so? In the old days, I mean really old days, we used to think it's births and deaths. But migration movement, voluntary movement, or refugees, um, the, size, the, the age of the population distribution, meaning very many young people or not, or the aging of the population, which is Europe's problem and the problem of, of, of Russia. It is also whether, whether societies have enough birth to kind of reproduce themselves over time. Uh, these are problems that we really never thought we would have when we talked about population you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. Define migrant versus refugee for us. Well, generally it's useful to think about migrants, people moving, uh, voluntarily in search of employment or in search of being with their families or in search of a better life. The key element being it's, it's really voluntary. Now you might say, well, if they're looking for a job elsewhere, then it's really not voluntary because they don't have a job at home. Uh, but then there's no gun to their head, so to speak. The refugees are people that move to save their own lives, to really save their own lives. If we look at migrants versus refugees, I'm curious which one impacts population peace the most? It's hard to say. In the very short run, um, the, the refugees are, you know, the consequence of, 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 of conflict. There's conflict, so they move out. Um, they can impact the receiving community, um, as, as we may be seeing in Bangladesh, on short order. The migrants it's more subtle when people move, and I would use the European situation uh, there, when people move for employment from non-European countries to France or to Germany or to whatever. Over time, given the number of people and so forth, they tend to find it difficult to integrate in the society and they become strangers in the land in which many of them have been uh, born. And uh, the ways in which different societies deal with this, the way in which different um, migrant communities deal with this, could lead to violence, but not necessarily to military conflict, if you wish. It's really interesting to see what's going to happen in Europe, because this, this is really the test case. So, Dr. Chukri, you mentioned before the U.S. is really a leader in sustainable development. And I'm kind of curious, because we're seeing... Houston and Florida and these hurricanes, and maybe in those cities there wasn't great planning. So I'm curious, um, it seems like there are some lessons that the U.S. still needs to learn about managing its own population. Absolutely. The irony in the U.S. is that the leadership in the sustainable development is more from the private sector, not from, um, not from the the government itself. Um, I think the private sector sees the opportunities and getting in there. And here's the dilemma we have. On the one hand, we don't want an overbearing government that goes into planning. Um, on the other hand, we really need somebody to do the planning since we know there's another hurricane coming down. 
so it's being caught between a rock and a, and a hard place, and the rocks are flying all over the place. Just to add one more thing, and this is that the U.S. government itself does not either use the word sustainable development or doesn't consider that it's part of the core of, of the values. Um, it's not that it's against it, but it's simply not part of... Uh, but, but society has is... Uh, MIT campus is the private sector that, that is producing uh, innovative products is. And all of those that are involved in the uh, uh, internet-related economies are... So there is leadership in this respect. Dr. Nazi Jukri, let's talk about the U.S. I think of the U.S. as a developed country. Should people, like in the U.S. and other parts of the developed world, care about the population peace issues in developing countries? I believe that um, they do, and they, they should, but I also believe that the population here people in the U.S., as you put it, uh, may not be giving enough attention to the poverty at home. There's, in some cities, the homelessness is really very visible, um, something that, that must be f can be fixed, I suppose, is fixable. Um, I think there's a, a worry now, in general, as I, I see it in, in, in the U.S., about, uh, well, let's not get involved too much with conditions elsewhere. Um, I think there's a, maybe a, a fear of being dragged into an unpleasant set of circumstances as a Vietnam War. Um, hmm. But I, I also think that in the United States, uh, this I feel strongly about, that we tend to underestimate the, the growth and the modernization and, and the, the, the um, um, savviness the rate at which uh, technological change has taken over in the rest of the world. I mean, China is a major power now. It's, I wouldn't say it's on par with the U.S., but give it another few years, except maybe for the military. India is on its way. Um, the old powers, the Europe, Japan, the Europeans, etc., may have trouble keeping up with, with, with the rapidly advancing ones. So it's a different world with respect to population um, than 30 years ago. 30 years ago, when I was in graduate school, uh, it's very funny, when I was in graduate school, um, the basket case that we used to talk about and think about, oh, how are they going to survive, what can we do, etc., was India. Um, too many states, too many communities, too many languages, too much poverty, you know, the list went on and on and on. But none of us at the time really anticipated um, what India has has been had was able to go through and, and become really almost a major power or a major power yes so on the other hand there are some countries that we had expected much of that, that um, didn't quite quite make it you mentioned that many people in the US don't care enough about poverty and homelessness at home at you in the US how does that relate to population peace in the U.S.? I'm not an expert in that area, uh, but my just watching and uh, television, watching, reading about events, etc., it, it does lead to to uh, breakouts, breakouts in in local violence and breakouts in uh, um, 
you know, cleavages in the societies. And, and what I see is that people are less willing to, the disadvantage, if you wish, are less willing to be quiet about it. Um, inner cities, which mercifully is not my, my, my focus, um, are not easy places to, to, to live in or to manage. And um, some parts of inner cities may look a little bit like, uh, not so much Calcutta, but some parts of, of, of a developing country. Is it because there are too many people? It's because people believe that what is owed to them has not come to them. Uh, people may believe that uh, there's not enough justice, that uh, too many barriers to their mobility. And in a way, it's sad because the United States is the most open, liberal, caring societies that, that we know about. So it, it, it looks like a set of contradictions. And maybe we're looking for maybe we're looking for perfection. Maybe we expect, or I expect, perfection at home. Doesn't work that way. What can we do in the U.S. about the issues of poverty or homelessness that lead to population and peace issues? I guess I would say two things. One is make it more possible, make it easier for those that feel disadvantaged to vent, to vent verbally, um, to make their, their views known and articulate uh, before there's a, a desire to to go out on the streets, etc. Um, and the other, the other side is, and this may not be the right political environment to, to suggest it, but to allocate more resources to reducing the gap between, uh, more money to reduce the gap between um, the average, whatever the average is, and the really disadvantaged. Okay, so you're saying more resources, not to let people vent. I like those ideas, and I wonder if there were less people, would that make a difference? In the United States? No. No, no. Uh, I, I think in the United States it's the concentration in areas that, that's the problem. The United States is not an overpopulated place, and the United States really, really needs um, a whole range of skills um, that um, you know the, the the migrants have not the refugees but the migrants have, have brought with them you can hear more of suzanne Kreider's conversation with nasli chukri mit political science professor her complete interview with her in fact at our website peacetalksradio.com look for our october 2017 episode and click on dr chukri's picture to hear that in a moment more from the two of us suzanne and i will be back debriefing on today's interviews all ahead on Peace Talks Radio.
You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the award-winning series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. You can find us online at peacetalksradio.com, and you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, too. Today we're asking the question whether anyone still considers overpopulation on the planet a global conflict concern. We've heard from John Seeger of Population Connection and researcher Nasli Chukri from MIT. I'm Paul Ingalls, and Suzanne Kreider, our co-founder and interviewer and host today, is still in the studio with me. So Suzanne, share with us a little bit about how you're feeling after now having talked with John and Nasli about this subject of uh, population rates and their impact on conflict and problems on the planet. Very happy to hear two different perspectives. And I was a little upset that no one agreed with my perspective, which is really different. Right. So we spoke at the beginning of the program that you and I, when we were married, we had a very serious conversation about children, whether or not we were going to have children. I can even picture this conversation happening. I think we went to a park in Cleveland, Mm -hmm. and we sat on rocks, and we talked about this. Uh, And as I remember, too, when we decided that we wouldn't have children, we flipped a coin like five times to see if the universe was going to it was eight times. Eight times. I still have that quarter. Really? Yes. Oh, that's interesting. Yes. So we flipped that coin eight times to see if it, uh, if the universe backed us up on our decision not to have children. Mm-hmm. Was it eight for eight? It was eight for eight, don't have kids. <laughs> it was really unusual. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about why you think or it appears that uh, – People don't want to have this conversation or don't want to go on the record saying what they feel about their choices to have or not have children. I'm not sure why people don't want to go on the record. Maybe they don't want to look like they're controlling other people's ideas. Maybe people who choose not to have children, maybe they're concerned. Oh, I'll look like I'm trying to make extinction possible. I'm not sure why people say no, and I don't know why people who have children don't come forward and say, yeah, this is a good idea, I'm glad I did this. You know, this is another personal story, but years ago, a person I know, a woman who's a friend of mine, who chose to have two children, said to me, I wish I hadn't had children. I wish I had done what you did. And I think this is a common belief that women have. Maybe men do too. And I think that uh, if you hear anybody casting any doubt about the possibility of somebody exercising their right to have a child, they think that you don't like kids or they don't like, that person speaking doesn't like children. Mm -hmm. How could they not like children? Children are angels. Children are sweet. Children are these unblemished spirits. I can say I see that all the time when I see children, my nieces and my nephews. I see them at the park every week when I go and walk around the park and they're playing soccer and they're there with their parents. Uh, I have helped co-parent a child uh, for a number of years. All all, all that doesn't undercut my uh, love for children, my respect for children, my hope for children, but it also doesn't undercut my comfort level with my idea not having a child for both the reasons of taking a socially responsible stand against populating the earth and also respecting my own choice of trying to focus on 
doing my life differently than my siblings or so many other people who have decided to have children. Uh, there's a lot of different paths to the human experience, and they don't all have to involve children. Yes, and I will also say children are wonderful, and they grow up. And everyone who today is in a prison, who is homeless, who is um, driving a car, who is um, using up a lot of resources, those people today who are adults were all children. And I am concerned about the number of people on the planet, people who are everywhere. Come on. There's lots of people. Mm-hmm. I don't want to sound like <clears throat> I hate people in prisons or I hate homeless people. I'm not saying that certain people shouldn't have babies. Or shouldn't have been born. Yeah, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying because I'm saying people also drive cars and have, you know, The point being is that there's a long arc to a life that involves impact on the planet and impact on each other that uh, are worth being considered when people are trying to make that decision about having children. The other thing that you've mentioned before is a pressure to have children. Let's look at that for a moment. I have thought that, and the reason why the topic seems to be taboo, particularly perhaps in the USA, is the children and larger families drive a capitalist economy. If you watch television, then you're going to see most commercials focusing on the family unit in a way that makes it seem somewhat inevitable that the definition of the human experience is having children, which creates more consumers. I mean, this is sort of a base ideological issue that is a little tricky to talk about, but I think it's also what makes people in the United States um, a little bit reticent to even have the conversation about considering whether or not to have children. Yes, and I also feel there's a pressure to have a partner. Not even, we're talking about kids, but there's a pressure to have a partner because having a partner and then having a family that is normal and if a woman can have babies she should have babies that's part of nature well is part of nature we're having too many people and we're killing each other and species are becoming extinct is that part of nature too so i feel that this pressure on women to have babies just because they can is not really fair i I feel that people can have a full human experience without having children. All right, so based on our experience and your research about this topic, then really what would you like to say to individuals who at some point will have this opportunity to procreate? I would say do your reading, find out what the impact is in terms of financially, environmentally, socially, on your work, vocationally. Having a child is going to impact you in many ways. So one thing a person could do is talk to other people who have children. Talk to other people who do not have children and see what the pros and cons are. Also think more about your own life and what you want to achieve in your human experience. Another thing to take into consideration is many women wait longer now. 
They don't have babies sometimes until they're 40 or 45. This is biologically possible. It's not always advised, but it's a possibility that you could wait. And what I would say is uh, just talk to other people who've had the experience. Do your reading about the impacts that having a child or not having a child can have in your life. Because a lot of the conflicts that we look at here on Peace Talks Radio, some of them are um, relative to uh, couples having the unwanted children that John Seegers referred to, um, the not well thought out families that uh, result in conflicts in the family, uh, conflicts, internal conflicts about realizing your own potential and your own dreams. I find in my own experience of thinking back on my friends who have had children, uh, some have taken a very thoughtful approach to it, and some are limiting their families to a certain size for those reasons. Um, But others, I have to say, would take a stance of, we're not sure what we're doing, but our parents didn't know what they were doing, and it all worked out okay. Um, I think the, the attitude of, we'll make it up as we go, we'll figure it out as we go, is putting too much to chance for both your own lives and the lives of the children that you may be bringing in the world, and in the larger sense, the health of the planet in general. And I'm not saying people shouldn't have babies. I'm not saying who should have babies. I'm just saying I would love it if people really thought about it. Because one thing John Seeger said is, well, we can't see species extinction when we look out the window. Well, we can't, but can't we intuit that this is happening in places we should care about? And we can realize maybe that too many people in the planet is causing lots of harm, like pollution, poverty, um, species extinction. If you could count the number of honeybees in your backyard, you might be able to track a reduction in the numbers, but that's not easy to do. True. But somebody is doing that, and they are counting, and those numbers are going down. It's going down. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) To me, it's about what's happening on the planet. How many people can this planet hold? Isn't anyone concerned about that? Well, our guests who are in the USA were not concerned. They said, oh, there's no real problem in the USA of overpopulation. However, I do see a connection between the number of people and consumption. I would disagree. I think they're both concerned, and I think they both realize the impacts, but they're both trying to find a solution that doesn't creep into this territory of suggesting at all about people not having children or telling people not to have children. I mean, Mr. Seeger would not go there, even though you prompted him a couple of times. He says, nobody wants to hear my opinion. I don't want to give my opinion. All I want to do is get the information, and they've learned that if you get information about family planning and resources and access to contraception, then population rates do go down in a certain population. And that's good enough for him. He was listing the kinds of things that too many people on the planet will bring. But he's very politically careful not to be the organization or agency that is even more specific about saying 
anybody, quote, should have this conversation very thoughtfully before they have children. Mm -hmm. He just wants to make sure they have the information and he feels that they have it and his research shows that if they do, then the big problem of overpopulation uh, is addressed. Yes, and let's say hurrah, because the population rate has decreased in many countries. So maybe 60 years ago, there wasn't a lot of birth control in the U.S., and people just had, like, my mom had five kids. Okay, well, if she was born today, she might not have five kids. She might have one or two. And so the rate we're seeing is going down. However, the issue is a person is born every eight seconds. A person dies every 12 seconds. That means that deaths are not keeping up with births. So it's really great that population rates are coming down. However, maybe they're not coming down enough. I also want to say that back to this issue of feeling badly if you don't have children. I remember when I went to one of my high school reunions, I think it was maybe my 30th reunion, a guy came up to me and said, how many kids did you have? I said, none. And he said, you're so selfish. I had two. Now, to me, that's not being selfish. I said, well, I don't see it as being selfish. I see it as being unselfish because I'm not populating the planet with a bunch of people. He had a very different view, which is you're only selfish if you don't have kids and don't give of yourself. Well, there's lots of ways I give of myself. There's lots of things I do that are volunteer or even the work I do. I feel like I'm helping people. So I would ask people to think about what does selfish mean? Well, and there are a lot of uh, people who didn't have children, myself included, who looked for ways to connect with children who are already on the planet that aren't getting, you know, quite the attention or love that they deserve through uh, mentoring programs or your nieces and nephews. There are other ways to connect with children that I think uh, a lot of people who make the decision not to have children unselfishly make time for. Obviously, lots of opinions on this topic. If you'd like to share yours with us, you can go to our website and connect with us via email at info at peacetalksradio.com. Write to us your comments. We'll share some of them on the air if we get them. Info at peacetalksradio.com. Suzanne Kreider, thanks for your work on the show. Thank you, Paul. You can check out more resources on this topic at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can hear this show again and every show we've done in the series since 2002. It's also where you can go to offer your support to our nonprofit organization that produces Peace Talks Radio, separate and apart from your local channel. Go to peacetalksradio.com to find out how to help. Support also comes from KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Nola Daves Moses is executive producer of Good Radio Shows Incorporated. Allie Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.